All right. Thanks for that. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, today is Father's Day, and if you are a dad in the place, uh, I'd just like to say that I'm with you. Um, I'm in the trenches right now, currently. Uh, and being a dad is one of the greatest challenges of my life, but also probably one of the greatest joys of my life as well. Um, it's really easy to get bogged down, I think, when you're, when you're a parent and you have uh, little kids to just kind of lose the forest for the trees, as it were, and, um, and not focus on the things that are really important. And what I, what I will say is that this responsibility of parenthood in general, but fatherhood today, because that's what we're focusing on, is important. Not in that we need to pay a ton of attention to the, to the, um, the ways in which we are a parent, but, the ty- but I think probably more important than all of it is the, is the type of person we are as a parent. Like the heart that we are cultivating as we live and grow and, and parent our children. And whether your children are grown and out of the house or not, there is this vital thing that is true, which is that the most important thing we can do Uh, for our children is to become the people that God has created us to be. And if we're able to do that well, then we will be uh, good parents. We will be flawed parents, all of us, but but good parents. And so that's my encouragement for you today on Father's Day. And I will take a nap this afternoon. So that's the other thing we need to focus on. So this morning we're beginning our series on the book of Revelation, uh, which we so eloquently titled Revelation, uh, because I was spending so much time studying for this that I didn't have time to come up with a cool name for the series. Uh, As many of you know, we're in the year of biblical literacy, um, which got a little interrupted because of COVID. Um, But we just got done with a series on the book of Psalms, so we went through the Psalms for three or four weeks. Uh, And now we are heading into the book that when when we looked at the year of biblical literacy, I realized we really do need to focus on this book. Because if we're going to become biblically literate, we have to deal with what is the most difficult to understand and polarizing book in the Bible, don't we? I would, be, I would be neglecting my responsibilities as a pastor if, I, if we dedicated a year to become, becoming better readers of the Bible and we didn't at least attempt to wade into this particular book. You know, I've been in churches my whole life. I've never been in a church that has done an entire series on the book of Revelation that has attempted to walk through it in the level of detail that we're going to attempt to walk through it over the next, brace yourself, 10 weeks. <laughs> So, um, um, you guys can have a meeting after church if you'd like to see if you want to remove me. Um, Now, I think the reason that people don't wade through this book is simply because it is dense and it is difficult, right? Reading Revelation can feel sometimes like one of those fairy tales that we read about where the heroes are going into the forest and they're scared because this wooded forest is deep and it is dark, and they're scared they're going to get lost. And so they do funny things, right? They like scatter breadcrumbs, or they tie a string to themselves before they head into the forest to try to find their way back. And I think when we read Revelation, it can feel a little bit like that, like we're wading into the forest, like we don't necessarily know where we are. The, The book itself is full of all this language that is so foreign to us. It's cataclysmic. It's got angels and beasts and burning lakes of fire and multicolored horses and trumpets and seals and bowls of God's judgment. 
It's the type of imagery that is just kind of hard to get our minds around. It's hard for Christians to get, uh, to get a real sense when we, if you were to just pop it open and read it, of what is actually being communicated there. It's hard for Christians, and what I've also found is that it is a, it is a, it is a book that can be incredibly off-putting to non-believers. And here is why I think this book can be at times so difficult. It's because it can lead us to, and has led Christians throughout time, to confusion about Jesus. Now that might sound strange, but I think that's the primary problem that we run into when we read this dense book we call Revelation. And this is why. When you open the New Testament, uh, specifically the Gospels, and you read about Jesus, you hear Jesus saying things like this, love your enemies as yourself, or whatever you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. And we all have this image of Jesus, right? Kind of like a Mr. Rogers figure that is sitting down and saying, let all the children come unto me, right? And that Jesus feels palatable. That Jesus feels even attractive to us. But we jump into the book of Revelation and all of a sudden Jesus is is walking around, uh, is not walking around telling people to love their neighbor anymore, right? Now he is walking around with a blood-soaked robe with a sword coming out of his mouth. And that, uh, that difference, that disparity, creates some tension, I think. On the surface, the difference between the Jesus we see in the Gospels and the Jesus we see in Revelation uh, can't be ignored, right? If you just look at it on the surface. And even worse than that, it causes other people throughout church history to read about this like kind of militant-looking, blood-soaked Jesus and think, oh, that's more like it. No more turning the other cheek, like, I can get on board with this guy, right? Which is an even more dangerous thing to think. We can get these contradictory pictures or ideas of Jesus in our head, and it can be very discombobulating to our spirit, actually. You know, I have seen people discredit Christianity as a viable faith because of the book of Revelation. I have seen, I, I have experienced people who have literally walked away from their faith because of this book as well. You know, here's what I believe. I don't believe that the Bible puts forward two contradictory pictures of Jesus. I don't believe that. The Jesus who told Peter to put away his sword in the garden does not, at the end of the Bible, kind of jump out from behind a bush with a sword and start whacking people, right? This is not what we are reading about. So the the center of this book, the center of the Bible, uh, if, if, if is something that I think there is a level of coherence between the Jesus of the Gospels and the Jesus of Revelation. And so, if you come away with anything from this series, here's what I would like you to come away with. I think it's on the screen. The Jesus of Revelation and the Jesus of the Gospels do not contradict one another at all. This is what I want you to see. I hope to show you that Revelation is a book that actually reinforces and further reveals the character of a God who is self-giving, self-sacrificial, and even enemy-loving. Revelation uses dense and sometimes confusing to us metaphors to communicate that fact, and that is why it's so easy for us to misunderstand. But as I've been studying this book again over the last two months or so, I've come to feel more strongly than ever that if we read Revelation responsibly— we can come to see a beautiful picture of Jesus that lines up perfectly with the impressions we get of him in the Gospels. I think this is true. And so today, what we want 
what we are going to do is to try to lay the groundwork for the rest of this series because we do need to lay some groundwork before we hop into this book. Revelation is one of those books that if you don't first get some categories straight in your head and kind of orient yourself before you begin the journey into it, it can be misread. It, It can be really easy to misread and so misread. And so we will be referencing back to some of these points that we talk about today throughout the series, but we really need to grasp some of these ideas specifically so that as we move forward, uh, we can move forward in understanding and know what it is that the book is communicating to us. So that is where we're going today. It's kind of like we're checking the compass before we make sure it's pointing due north before we head on the journey. All right? So today, uh, we want to use the first chapter of Revelation to try to orient us in this series. And I want to answer kind of three basic questions for you and for me. Uh, And those questions are on the screen. Here's what the questions I want to have answered are today. What is Revelation? Who is Revelation written to? And how should we read the book of Revelation? These sound slightly academic, but they turn out to be incredibly important. If we can't answer these three questions, we can't actually read the book uh, well. We can't actually read the book the way it was intended to be read. So those are the three questions I want to cover today. Uh, So let's jump into the first question, shall we? What is Revelation? What is it? It's a really good question. Uh, In your Bibles, Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 says this, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, what I want to focus on with you as we attempt to answer this question, what is revelation, is that very first phrase that you read, the revelation from Jesus Christ. The revelation from Jesus Christ. The name of this book, Revelation, comes from this phrase, from from this verse phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation is an English translation of a Greek word, we're going to do some Greek because we have to, uh, of a Greek word, apocalypsis. Can you say apocalypsis? Very good. You nailed it. So revelation equals apocalypsis, right? Which is, which is where we get our English word, you guessed it, apocalypse, right? That's where we get the English word apocalypse. Now, this word has caused some real confusion when we attempt to read revelation because the English definition of the word apocalypse is what? the end of the world, right? That's what, the, that's what the definition of the English word apocalypse is. And so when people read the book of Revelation, they read it primarily through the lens of a book about the end of the world, right? That's how they read it. They read it, you, you've seen all the movies, right? Every movie that has apocalypse or Armageddon or something like that is about a meteor hitting the earth or something, right? It's about the end of the world. If you ask most people what the book of Revelation is about, they would say it's about the end of the world. But that's not totally accurate. That's not 100% accurate. Uh, We do get a picture of how the story of God wraps up 
right? We are given hope that the story is going to wrap up the, the way God wants it to wrap up. Specifically, we get that picture in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, and that story is told to us not so that we can obsess about it, but so that persecuted Christians can have hope. That's why this, that's why we're given this picture of the end, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But Revelation is primarily about Jesus, right? Amen. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, and we know this is true because of the way the word apocalypse is used in this first phrase. To insert the modern translation of apocalypse in for the word revelation in this phrase, it would read something like this, the end of the world from or of Jesus Christ, which doesn't make any sense, does it? The end of the world of Jesus Christ? What? What are you talking about? It sounds strange because that's not what this, this phrase is attempting to communicate to us. Because the Greek phrase apocalypsis does not mean the end of the world. It means a revelation or, a, or an unveiling. Or an unveiling. It communicates this idea of something that is hidden or something that isn't clearly seen being unveiled or revealed to the light or shown for what it really and truly is. You know, many of the translations of this first sentence, if you have an NASB or an ESV, that it will not translate it, the word from, uh, the, the revelation from Jesus Christ, it will actually translate this word, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's because there's some, there's some nuance. There's actually no particle there. There's no possessive particle. It's actually just uh, a possessive pronoun. Anyways, uh, sorry. Uh, but uh, so there's a little, it's a little nebulous as to what, whether it is of or from. But what we know is that this revelation that is being given to John is about Jesus. It was specifically revealed to John. The book is written to reveal Christ to us. This is the way one scholar, a guy named Michael Gorman, says it. He says, like every other New Testament book, revelation is about Jesus Christ. A revelation of Jesus Christ and about following him in obedience and love. If anyone asks, why read the apocalypse? The unhesitating answer must be to know Christ better. That's the answer to the question, to know Christ better. You see, if we're reading this book to try to get some secret or special insight into the future, thinking it's kind of like a crystal ball, that's, that if we just stare into it, it's going to teach us about who the one world government is or what the mark of the beast is or who, what the identity of the Antichrist is. We have missed the point of the book. And I would submit to you that when we get focused on stuff like that, we miss the point uh, that we are first and foremost when we open this book, that its primary purpose is to reveal Christ to us. And if we remember that, we won't get lost in the woods. If we remember that, we'll kind of have a true north. This book is meant to reveal Christ to us in some unique and special way. Now, uh, one last Bible nerd thing before we move on from this question this morning. It's important that we understand the biblical genre of the book of Revelation, the, the type of book that it is. Basically, what kind of writing is actually happening here. Because knowing what kind of letter this is will help us read it well also. In the same way that knowing the difference between a history book and a historical fiction book helps us read it with integrity and actually know what we're reading, uh, reading Revelation within its genre is important so that we can read it well. 
So we can be savvy in our reading of the book of Revelation. So Revelation is written in a style or a genre scholars call apocalyptic literature. Now, I know this is confusing because we just talked about apocalyptic, uh, apocalypsis as a, as a word that means unveiling. But there, this, after this book and other books like it, uh, scholars call this type of writing apocalyptic literature. Now, this is confusing, like I said, uh, but follow me here. There are other examples of this type of writing in the Bible as well, specifically in the book of Daniel. You'll read some apocalyptic literature which is a book that Revelation draws on and quotes a lot. But apocalyptic literature is a style of writing that the Pentecostal scholar Gordon Fee says deliberately uses cryptic language and symbolism to communicate its ideas. And this means that when the book uses things like numbers, colors, and even symbolic imagery, uh, many of us, when we read the uh, when we read it in our Western kind of thinking, read those things literally. You know what I mean there? We, we read it with a literal mind. Because of the scientific revolution and the, because we are post-enlightenment people, we have a hard time reading things in a, uh, in a more symbolic way and understanding the ways in which uh, they represent truths. Does this make sense? But Revelation is not like that. Revelation is not a literal book attempting to communicate. It's attempting to communicate literal truths and facts, but it is not written in a literal style. Does this make sense? It uses things like numbers and colors to communicate truths, real truths, but to communicate them in a symbolic or stylized way. And so, for instance, the color white Here's just an example for you. The color white in the book of Revelation represents something. It represents something. It represents things like victory, purity, cleanliness, even God's realm or the kingdom of God or heaven. Now, this does not mean that everyone in heaven is going to be wearing white robes, right? You can agree or disagree. Um, those of you who are really looking forward to the toga party in heaven, I'm sorry to let you down. Um, I apologize. Uh, but it means that those, those images are stand-ins for a true reality, right? They correspond to truth. But we're, we're using these images and pictures over and over and over again to point out a reality to us. Does this make sense? This is why numbers keep popping up in the way they do in Revelation, why co different colors pop up, and why s different images are used throughout the book to communicate ideas to us. This is what apocalyptic literature does. Um, this is not a one-to-one -one correlation, but it helps. Some, uh, if you read a fantasy story like The Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, the, those writers are using and this is a different thing because that's pure fiction, but the writers are using imagery, right, and ideas to communicate truths. The, the white wizard is the good one, right, because that color represents something of purity, and so it's not a one-to-one -one correlation, but there is some, um, there's some resonance between those ideas. So the symbolism of apocalyptic literature and revelation is what makes it evocative and exciting to read. It's what makes, uh, and it is what makes it difficult at times. Because where does, because here's the question, where does the symbolism end and the literal truth begin, right? 
because we believe that this is God's word and it's communicating a literal truth to us. But because it's so deeply symbolic, we have to do more work to try to figure out where the symbolism ends and where the truth begins or what truth the symbolism is trying to point to, what it corresponds to. Does this make sense? I'm getting, I'm getting technical, but we need to lay this groundwork. And so as readers of this book, it is our job to work at sussing that stuff out. That's what we do as readers of the book of Revelation. We try to, we try to figure that stuff out. And obviously, I hope to help you in that uh, as this series goes. Uh, but the short answer is the way we do that is we work and read carefully as, as we read. And so, uh, that is the answer to what Revelation is. It is an apocalyptic letter meant to reveal Jesus to us. That's what the book of Revelation is. Are you with me? Okay, good. Now, to the second question. Who is Revelation written to? Who is it written to? Now, jump down in chapter 1 of Revelation to verse 4 with me for a second. And this is what that says in beginning in verse 4. To the seven churches of the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. So I will ask you, after I read this to you aloud, who is Revelation written to? The seven churches in Asia. There's an actual, it, there is an audience for this book, right? And John says it, and Jesus says it, right to these people. Now, this is important because when most of us read Revelation, actually when most of us read the Bible in any way, shape, or form, we don't read it first and foremost like it was written to someone else, do we? We read it as though it were written to us. And it was, in a sense, written to us, right? But in order to really understand what it is saying, and this is especially true with Revelation, we first have to understand the intended audience of the letter, the people that John, the writer of Revelation, wanted to communicate these truths to. In order to be responsible readers of Revelation, we must read it first and foremost through the eyes of its first readers, the intended audience. And so, and, and we have to ask this question, what did this mean to them? What did this book, when they first read it, what did it mean to them? And like I said, this is more important in Revelation than almost any book in the Bible, because, because we love to speculate, don't we? We love to, we love to read this book as though it were written to us, and then speculate what it might mean to us. And, and it's, and we need to make connections between the Bible in our lives, most certainly, and that's true of Revelation as well. But specifically with the book of Revelation, if we start with us, we will misinterpret it entirely. We have to start with what it meant to them, and after we begin to grasp what it meant to them, we can then move to us. It's a very important interpretive key to reading this book. Until we understand what it means to them, we cannot in any way understand what it means to us. And if we derive an interpretation from this book that its first audience would not have understood, it is an incorrect interpretation. 
all right? It's an important thing to pay attention to. And John makes this clear in verse 9 of chapter 1. He says, I, John, your brother and companion. Oh, did I skip a page? I did. Sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, anyways. Okay, so chapter 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering uh, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus Christ, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see, John it makes clear in this section that he is writing this letter, this letter of Revelation, to these churches in what is modern-day Turkey um, to encourage them. In verse 9, he says, to you brothers and companions in the suffering and in the kingdom, right? This is what he's saying. You are my companions and you are suffering and I'm with that in you because I'm with, I'm in that with you because I'm on the island of Patmos. I've been exiled for my faith and I am writing to you uh, to build you up in patient endurance, right? And so that you will trust Jesus, and so that you will know the testimony or the word of God that is in Christ Jesus. This is why he's writing to them. John is a prophet. Now, this is important to note here. John is a prophet, and he does see that the churches are going to under, undergo persecution and difficulty, right? So part of the, when you read chapter 1, you realize that he is concerned about something that it will happen to them. He says, what will soon happen to you, right? Something is soon going to happen to you, and that something gets revealed as we go in Revelation. But it's clear from the context that what is soon going to happen to these churches or to these uh, in, in Asia Minor is that they are going to endure a level of persecution that they had not experienced before. And John is writing to them. Uh, he's writing to his brothers and sisters in the faith because he sees on the horizon a clash that is going to occur with the power and authority of specifically Rome. And he sees the way in which Rome is going to oppress these people. And so he writes things like this in, in verse 19 of Revelation chapter 1. If you want to hop down there, you can read this. Write, therefore, this is what Jesus says to John, write, therefore, what you have seen and what is now and what will take place. So the church, John is exiled, right? He's, in, he's experiencing persecution. So what is now is persecution, and what will take place later is a greater level of persecution. And then he says in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on your right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, and can I just tell you, this is exactly what takes place in church history. The church was persecuted in this time and after this time in a way that was horrific. And that persecution gets ratcheted up in the second and in the third centuries. And Christianity more and more, as Christianity becomes more and more a threat to Roman political and religious power. So uh, this is what, again, the, the Pentecostal New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says about this passage. He says, what John had come to see clearly as a waiting... Um, see clearly, as awaiting a new generation of believers, was the church's coming collision with the empire over who should rightly be proclaimed as Lord and Savior, the Roman emperors or the humble Galilean who had been crucified, but who their followers asserted had been raised from the dead. 
So, if you read Revelation in this way, understanding that this is who it is written to, to the churches of Asia Minor listed in verse 11, and that it was written precisely for the purpose of uplifting and encouraging those churches who were currently, uh, and even more in the future, going to experience greater and greater levels of persecution from the empire, if you read it with that kind of mind, all kinds of stuff begins to line up in this book. It begins to make a lot more sense, actually. Instead of jumping to conclusions about what it might mean for my life, we first understand what it means for the first century world, and then we can draw our lines to our world. You know, one of the funniest examples I ran across this week of somebody first reading the book of Revelation into their uh, into their experience, rather than reading it first as, um, as through first century eyes, was that in the 70s, I didn't know this, in the 70s, a lot of churches that got obsessed with the book of Revelation began talking about the fact that they believed they knew who the Antichrist was. It was Henry Kissinger. They got obsessed with the fact that Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist, which turned out not to be true. Uh, but but when we when we miss when we miss what this means to the first century, we we can easily make mistakes like that. Uh, but instead, we must ask the question: What was John communicating to this persecuted church in the heart of the Roman Empire? And when we see and when we do that, all kind of light bulbs start turning on as we read it, which leads us to the last question I want to answer this morning, which is how should we read it? We just talked a little bit about how we should read it, and um, we already answered. We should read it through first century eyes, asking the question, how does, what does this, what did this mean to, to first century, first, second, and third century Christians in the Roman world? But there is one more, I think, in what, we, what we call an interpretive key a way of reading this book of the Bible that helps clear up all kinds of misunderstandings when we read it. And I think it's the most important thing that we're going to come away with today. And that last thing is that we have to read the book of Revelation in a lamb-centered way. We have to approach Revelation with a lamb-centered reading. Sounds a little strange, doesn't it? It's okay. When you get lost in the forest and you don't know which way is up, hold on to the image of the lamb. You know, the primary way Jesus is spoken about in the book of Revelation is not as a marauding, swashbuckling pirate, right? The primary way Jesus is spoken about in the book of Revelation is as a slain lamb, as a slain lamb. Specifically, in Revelation 4 and 5, we're first introduced to this image of Jesus as the slain lamb. After the section where, uh, where John is told to address all seven of the churches of Asia Minor, he jumps into this, um, this heavenly vision of the throne room, and he asks this question, who is, who, who is able, who is, who, is, um, who is worthy to open the seals, right? He asks this question. And his answer to that question is that the slain lamb is the one who is worthy to, who is truly, really and truly worthy. We are given, and then from that point on through the book of Revelation, over and over and over again, we are given a picture of this lamb, of this slain lamb, who, predom- who is the predominant metaphor for Jesus. And the way, and this, and this is what's important, this, his 
the way he exercises his authority in the world is through this image or this picture of a slain lamb. And the lamb becomes the focal point of the story. Um, this is what uh, the New Testament scholar Richard Hayes says about this image of the slain lamb. He says that this image discloses the central mystery of Revelation. That is, that God overcomes the world not through a show of force, but through the suffering and death of Jesus. You see, what God did through the cross was not a one-time occurrence. Revelation shows us that the cross is the defining event of the history of the cosmos. The cross comes to define Jesus' mode and character from the Gospels all the way to the end of the book to, to Revelation. And that the victory that was won over the powers of sin and death and over the principalities and powers, the victory that Jesus won on the cross is the same victory that wins the victory in the book of Revelation. It is not a different victory. It is not a different way of fighting. The, the one who is worthy is the slain lamb. The slain lamb. God in Christ did not ditch that victory at the end of the book. Everything God does in the history of the world is done and is exemplified in the cross of Christ. Now, we must always, always, always keep the lamb in mind when we read Revelation. As, and, so, and just as we conclude today, I just want to read a little bit for you uh, of Revelation uh, chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And this is what, uh, this is what we, we hear. This is uh, John speaking. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, which is verily, truly, let it be so. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You see, the lamb is the center of the story. And if we miss the lamb, we miss the story. If we get too caught up in all kinds of other things, we miss the story. And this is the last thing I'm going to say today. The book of Revelation was not written for any other reason than for encouragement. Encouragement. It, we, are, we are given this picture of the victory that the slain lamb wins to encourage our hearts. And the, this book has been wielded in ways that has caused a lot of fear, hasn't it? It's been used to create fear in people's hearts. 
And I would, I would submit to you that any reading of the book of Revelation that does not center its understanding, or the, the theological word is its hermeneutic, you're welcome, uh, on the slain lamb is a misreading. And any reading of this book that's primary mode of operation is to create fear is a misreading. Because the book of Revelation is about the slain lamb who takes away the sins of the world and wins victory over the powers of darkness through his death, through his, his self-sacrificial death, to encourage those who are under the hand of empire that their victory is assured. Amen. Amen. This is why the book of Revelation was written. And if you struggle with fear about this book, if you're like me and you just were up at like three in the morning with all your youth group friends reading the end of it thinking like scared out of your mind, that is not the appropriate reading of this book. It's just not. And so over the next nine weeks, we are going to read this book through this lens, seeking to understand what it meant to the first audience and always using a lamb-centered reading in order to know what the Spirit is, was said to them and what the Spirit is saying to us through it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we love you. And we pray uh, that you would help us to be a people, a people who read your scriptures well. We know that uh, there's a lot in the book that's not easy, and no one has it 100% right, not even a pastor. And so we ask God that you would help us, you would help us to be humble in our approach to this book. You would help to build us up. And we pray more than all of it that it would drive us to Jesus. That as we read Revelation, it would draw, it would, we would get a clear picture of the character and purpose of Christ. And that our hearts would be just enveloped in a passion and a deep love for this image of Jesus that we're given in the book of Revelation. God, help us to be people of the book. Help us to be people of the book of Revelation and help us to see the love and the grace that is given to us through this slain lamb. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Go tell your friends. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.